Due South on WUNC, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. Hi, hey, and hello. Glad to have you tuned to our North Carolina Friday News Roundup. I'm Jeff Tabiri, joined here in our studios by Colin Campbell, Capitol Bureau Chief at WUNC, Don Vaughn, Capitol Bureau Chief at the News and Observer, Lucille Sherman, reporter Axios Raleigh, and Liz Schlemmer, education reporter at North Carolina Public Radio. It is Groundhog Day, and later in the hour, we'll have an update on Punxsutawney and whether or not winter is extended. I don't even know if winter began, but we'll discuss the shadow and the ramifications of not only Punxsutawney Phil, but an armadillo in Apex. I know you're waiting with bated breath. Before we get to those big stories and some bigger ones as well, here are some of our sounds of the week. The structure of our schools is going downhill because of how they treat their employees has gone downhill. Durham Public Schools has been rocked by staff sickouts after the district announced its plans to revoke raises that classified staff received for months. Republican lawmakers say the crisis at the border could affect North Carolina. This isn't for politics today. Uh, this is this is to talk about the policy because this is a real issue. Whether the General Assembly, government, you know, uh, can can in essence put not just its thumb on the scales, but its foot on the scales. Salisbury attorney Bill Graham is one of three GOP primary candidates for governor. He wants people to get a $5,000 credit on their state income taxes when they buy their first home. An interesting housing proposal. The situation in Durham escalates. And uh, is North Carolina a border state suddenly? Maybe to some, depending on uh, your point of view. We're going to get to all that and much more. Uh, Even a little uh, hoop on this Friday. Uh, Welcome to our panelists. We're going to begin talking about money today on the North Carolina Friday News Roundup. It is politics, of course. Money in politics is uh, egregious and notable. To some, it's even laughable, if not at times downright nauseating. As one strategist has told me, and I suspect some of the panelists here as well, money might not be the most important thing in campaigning, but it buys almost all of the most important things. We got new campaign finance reports this week, and I want to talk about the specificity of some of what we learned this week and also the big picture of campaign finance as we think about this primary, which is just a few weeks away. So a top-line financial takeaway to kick us off. Don, please begin. Uh, Democratic Attorney General Josh Stein has the most money, a lot of money. That's not a surprise. He's been running for a while now and is just still getting more. Eleven plus million dollars in the bank. I mean, this is going to be the most expensive governor's race in history, which, you know, we set that record last time. We're going to set it again. We'll probably set it again the following time. Eleven plus million for Stein. Colin, just one number or one note as we get into this as it pertains to campaign. Yeah. So to compare uh, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, who's uh, far and away the biggest fundraiser on the Republican side, he raised uh, about three and a half million in the second half of last year. He has four point three million on hand. So a fraction of what Stein has. Um, And then everybody else is below that, with the exception of uh, Bill Graham, one of the other Republican candidates, he raised almost two and a half million, but most of it came from himself, and then he spent most of it on ads already. So he's you know not in as good a shape as the others. And um, the other Democrat, Mike Morgan, the other Republican State Treasurer Dale Falwell, only raised about a hundred thousand dollars. So 
you know, chump change compared to the front runners in these things. A quick math, back of the envelope, a 40th of what Robinson has raised. This is a, a very small fraction. Lucille, coming to you in a moment, the, the, the other little bit of context that I'll drop in here is money comes from various avenues and portals, right? There are direct contributions to, to campaigns and candidates. There is, in some cases, uh, if it's a Senate race or a congressional race, uh, there is national money that will come in. There are, are PACs. There are super PACs. There's dark money. There's outside money. It's, it's hard to track all of this money. And that's just to say, you note 11 million for Stein, the uh, you know, one of the Democratic candidates for governor and 4.3, I believe you said, for Robinson, one of the Republican candidates for governor. That's only a small piece of the pie. But uh, Lucille, what do you got? Yeah, I thought one thing that was really interesting to me is the number of small dollar donors hmm. Stein and Robinson are also pulling in. Um, Robinson has a little bit more um, in terms of the sheer number of small dollar donors donating his campaign. But both of them have an impressive amount of people obviously they have really wealthy people donating to their campaign but i thought it was really interesting like sort of people who are donating smaller amounts too. and you can tell they're on the sort of like uh kind of like the uh, public radio sustainer plan where it's like five dollars <laughs> a month for their preferred candidate um and then you have like the the big dollar donors like if you just look at the the maximum going to these committees you can donate for example a maximum of just over six thousand dollars and there's some real big names on that like when on, i looked at josh stein's report uh, some of his top donors were uh, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, uh, Ralph Lauren, you know, the uh, fashion guy from D.C. Mm. Uh, all of them are very interested in the North Carolina governor's race this year, apparently. I also thought it was interesting, the North Carolina Democratic Leadership Committee, which is um, basically going to funnel more money into Stein's campaign, raised quite a bit of money. I think they raised a little bit less than $2 million. Um, and that sort of also bolsters Stein campaign. So when we're talking about how much money the candidates raise is just a fraction of what money their campaign is sort of getting bolstered with. Right. This is a good example And the committee you mentioned actually is funding a lot of its money through Governor Roy Cooper's campaign. He's term limited, not running for anything right now, still put in like a million dollars, which he presumably will use uh, towards helping Stein and other Democrats uh, across the finish line. This yeah, year. he's got all these. It's, I mean, you know, reporters see all the same fundraising emails yeah. as everyone else. And it's like Roy Cooper campaign for what? He's like, I just need this money. Can you please donate? You know, and, and Cooper, a couple of, I guess, quick points here. Uh, Governor Cooper, former Attorney General Cooper, has proven himself to be a, a very stout fundraiser over the years. He's raising this money and legally, this is all above board here, he can spread it around as he deems fit, whether it's a gubernatorial candidate, somebody like Josh Stein, who uh, he is aligned with, or whether there are particular competitive legislative races that he wants to send this toward. I, I do want to note just quickly, Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, is a Duke grad donating uh, to, to Josh Stein. So I don't know, I mean, a little bit of crossover here. Stein is not a Carolina grad, is he? He's an Ivy League grad. I almost I, I believe there. so, but yeah. I, th I feel like his family has at least some connections to Chapel Hill. He's, he's got a yes. son uh, at, at Chapel Hill. Um, all right. Uh, let's move uh, just, I, I don't know, elsewhere in the ballot. I saw some emails this week that were notable. Destin Hall, he's the speaker in waiting in the North Carolina House. He raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, does anyone want to kind of break down or go next level on Hall here? It's been such a long week. I kind of forgot I wrote about that <laughs> until this very moment. Um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. You know, it's super important that whoever the leaders are in the state legislative chambers raise a lot of money because sort of like Cooper's doing, they need to spread it around. Uh, Hall doesn't have a super competitive race. He's in a pretty Republican-leaning district. 
he should be safe in the upcoming election, but has a lot of money that will sort of go toward the cause of making sure other Republicans are reelected in his caucus. He doesn't have anything else to do, I guess. Right. So, I mean, if he doesn't have his own competitive race, he can go help out everyone. Well, else. And normally this money would go through House Speaker Tim Moore. But I mean, this isn't a sign he's kind of checked out and is ready to get on up to Congress for the race that he is running for. And so Hall is going to take over, I guess, a lot of the sort of campaign machinery and fundraising for House Republicans uh, in order to get them uh, through this election and, cycle. And Moore is, you know, Hall's lieutenant. Mm-hmm. So he's going to, you know, follow the Moore playbook. I think. North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on Due South. Lucille, Colin, Don and Liz, who you'll hear from in a couple of moments uh, here on Due South. I want to go next level here, maybe a little bit wonky. I always found this interesting. And if somebody has an example uh, from recent years to throw in here, please do so. Uh, Tim Moore, very good fundraiser. Phil Berger, head of the Senate, very good fundraiser. And what we have seen at times is they use that money as something of a leverage point. They use this money to keep lawmakers in line, to get them to fall in line. So if there's a Republican uh, who has not behaved well or been in line with the caucus, uh, at times they have used or they've threatened to use money uh, as something of a deterrent or something uh, of a, a helper to, to, to challengers, potential primary challengers. Any examples come to mind there? I don't admittedly have an example in my head, but I, I recall this I can happening. think of yeah. the Democrats doing that okay. last sure. election. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, when... I think you may see that in this election. You've already seen um, there's this odd uh, primary up in uh, Rockingham County where uh, Representative Reese Pirtle uh, has a challenger who may or may not be a neo-Nazi, depending on uh, what sources you're looking at and uh, various social media posts that uh, he's made, organizations he's been involved with. The House caucus director, who works directly for Tim Moore, has been the one trying to challenge his candidacy based on pa- his past criminal record, trying to get him off the ballot. So you can assume that's the prelude to the fact that he's still on the ballot. Uh, they're going to spend a bunch of money to keep Reese Pirtle in that seat and avoid ending up with a potential neo-Nazi on the ballot in November. I've seen Stephen Wiley, who's the you know, GOP House Caucus director, just like come at him, you know, on on Twitter, too. Not just I, I want to roll this in a slightly different direction, bigger picture here. But it, it strikes me at times, it struck me for years that uh, and I want to look at the attorney general's race for a moment as maybe a way to synthesize this. You have a congressman, Jeff Jackson, Democrat, running for the nomination on the attorney general side. You also have Satana DeBerry, who's the attorney general elected attorney, excuse me, the elected district attorney in Durham County. And he, Jackson, has this massive fundraising advantage. And it's felt to me at times, this race is one example, where candidates get in early and they announce these big numbers. And it's like, no one's voted. No one's paying attention. Like, this isn't even a race yet, but it's almost akin to like a hundred yard dash where, hey, Lucille, I'm racing you. But before the race, before that gun even goes off, I'm going to try to get to yard 60. And the race is effectively over. It strikes me that this is maybe not great for democracy, but it is the reality of it. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to Mike Morgan, who is a candidate for governor um, in the Democratic primary and sort of like the number two, I think, candidate to front runner Josh Stein. Um, And he has been really frustrated because he got in the race. I think it was September. And historically, that's not exactly late. You don't even file until December. Um, But whenever people talk about the Democratic primary, they're like, well, Mike Morgan isn't doing as well because he got in the race late. And he takes big issue with that because it's not technically late. But yeah, the name of the game is getting ahead and raising a lot of money. I mean, it was late compared to Stein, right? Even Stein getting in crazy early, like over a year last January, and everyone already thought he was running. Same time when like Robinson finally got in, everybody already thought he was running. Stein and Robinson have been running for years at this point. Years. 
at this point. Lucille Sherman of Axios, Don Vaughn from the News and Observer. Also here in studio are Colin Campbell and Liz Schlemmer, both on that WUNC journalism squad. We're getting going here on the North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on Due South. On the other side, an update as to uh, that situation in the Durham Public Schools. Raises revoked and there were uh, sick outs this week. Details on the other side. Welcome back. It's Due South on WUNC. 64 years ago yesterday, four freshmen from North Carolina A&T State University walked into the Woolworths in downtown Greensboro, found seats at the counter, and asked to be served. But they were not served. They were black, and this was still the segregated South. So Ezell Blair Jr., Franklin McCain, Joseph McNeil, and David Richmond stayed put at that lunch counter. They heard insults and taunts, faced physical threats, yet remained stoic. The evening papers, local TV, and radio stations soon had the story, and the sit-in movement was underway. The young men returned the next day with friends, and word of the peaceful demonstration spread, first to nearby cities, Winston, Raleigh, Durham, Wilmington, and within weeks, the solemn demand for equality spread like kudzu through the Jim Crow South. Dozens were participating. The sit-in movement is an unheralded yet pivotal chapter in the American Civil Rights Movement. And a few months later, on July 25th, that Woolworths relented and began serving black customers at its establishment. Today, that site is home to the International Civil Rights Museum. And if you have never been, it is well worth the trip down I-40. I'm Jeff Tiberi. This is the North Carolina Friday News and Politics Roundup here on Due South with Don, Lucille, Colin, and Liz. That's just a bit of history about February 1st, 1960. But, of course, there are even more unheralded moments in the civil rights movement. Don, you have a date you want to share with us. Yes. So uh, Durham civil rights history is tied to, of course, national civil rights history. There was a sit-in here in 1957, June 23rd, 1957. It's at Royal Ice Cream, just kind of, you know, on the edge of, uh, of downtown Durham. Reverend Douglas Moore of Asbury Temple United Methodist Church led six uh, African-American students in a sit-in there. So that was years before. It didn't it wasn't the catalyst for the big wave of Greensboro, but uh, it did happen here first. Bragging rights on the line between these two cities? Just a little competition, old tobacco <laughs> towns. I will note this. Um, I have had in my reporting career the opportunity, the privilege, uh, really uh, a joy and an honor to uh, speak with three of the surviving Greensboro four. One of them, uh, Franklin McCain, has since uh, since passed. I met them a couple of times across the last decade. And one of the uh, surviving members is Joseph McNeil, who did speak uh, when that International Civil Rights Museum was opened, uh, I believe, in back in 2010. The sit-ins was not about Frank McCain or Giselle Blair or Joe McNeil sitting down and having a cup of coffee next to a white person. It was much deeper than that. It was about choice. It was about having the ability to say, I choose to sit down. Or I choose to drink from that water fountain. I don't choose white water or black water or colored water. I want water. I want water. And I will say this, as somebody who grew up uh, not in the South, not in North Carolina, 
I didn't know anything of the Greensboro Four, the A&T Four, until I arrived in this state. And many of my friends, people I grew up with, they didn't because this wasn't uh, taught in in schools uh, in the Northeast. So anyway, a note there. If you've never been in the museum, uh, sincerely, you should check it out. So let's uh, stay in Durham and stay with uh, something of public schools where the mess only seems to be getting messier at DPS. Some of you listeners might remember that Durham Public Schools, the district rolled out significant raises last fall to some 1,300 support staff, mechanics, janitors, cafeteria workers, as well as occupational and physical therapists. Then, months later, DPS realized, "Uh uh-oh, we don't have the money to fulfill these pay increases. So the raises were revoked. That was a couple of weeks ago. We've talked about it here on the News Roundup. This week, 11 schools closed for a day after employees, licensed teachers, and other certified staff coordinated a mass sick day. This was a show of solidarity. There were several protests this week as well. For its part, the district still seems to be uh, frustratingly opaque in its handling of this major pay snafu. Still no explanation as to how this all happened. I don't believe any press conferences yet to answer reporter questions. Is very little transparency. Liz, you continue to follow this closely. What can you add? What's the latest here? Well, one number I need to share with you is 12. So 12 schools closed on Wednesday, um, between 75% and up to maybe 90% of school employees at each of those schools put in sick leave the day before. So on Tuesday, after the bells let out, so around 2.30, 3 o'clock, school employees, this is not just the affected classified staff, but also teachers, other educators, mm-hmm. put in their leave, mm-hmm. said, I will not be here tomorrow. Um, The school district didn't actually call off school until, I think, around 9 p.m. I believe it was after 9 o'clock. It was after 9 o'clock. So they, you know, there were six hours hours that passed there between when people were saying that they weren't coming in. Um, I think there was some push from some PTAs saying, you you, like, you're really not going to be able to keep these schools open. Um, So parents found out late at night, Mm -hmm. maybe the next morning. Scrambling. Um, other schools were open, um, but and these were these sick outs, walkouts, whatever you might want to call them, mm-hmm. um, were called by the Durham Association of Educators. They had been surveying employees to see what they were willing to do mm-hmm. as an action um, to speak out against these raises that were revoked. Um, another number, the raises went Please. to 2,200 staff, but 1,300 were told that their years of experience were going to be reduced okay. and that their raises would be so reduced. So raises went to 2,200 and they were revoked from 1,300? Yes. Okay. How do you uh, reduce someone's years of experience? That seems like a low blow. So Durham has had this longstanding practice of honoring uh, relevant work experience in an industry as if it's state service, even if it wasn't actually at a state agency. So, like, a good example of this is that DPS has had occupational therapists for years that it contracted um, through Duke Health. And they actually worked in Durham Public Schools, but they weren't technically working for the schools. So DPS would say, we're going to count that as if it was state service. They've done that for years. And now um, it looks like, well, one, they, they didn't. The school board didn't actually pass these raises, so there's an issue there. Um, the school board has also said the district didn't budget for them. So, and there, the salary study that they were acting on, the consultants had recommended you really need to look at the state service. You really need to verify that it was actually to a state agency. So, 
it looks like their cost estimate was based on the idea that they would do that, but that's not what happened. So they're reducing state service for about 1,300 classified staff. And you don't mess with people's paychecks. You don't say like, here's all this, you know, you have this money now, so you adjust your bills, your payments on everything, and then they're like, psych. Sure. Yeah, like, that yeah. doesn't work. You, you yeah. And they purchase. paid it out you, for yeah. months, too. That's yeah. the other thing is that they started paying them in October. It was dated all the way back to July. I mean, they're receiving a semester's worth of payment at one level and being told it's going to be reduced. So a lot of questions here, right? Why did this happen? How did this happen? When did DPS figure out that it had happened? And then when did they communicate it? And that's a big question from my standpoint that I think that we will maybe get a little more transparency on once the forensic analysis is done. But we don't know yeah. that yet. So that, yeah. that's a big question. I mean, I hope that we'll get some of those answers soon. So the school board has said that they've hired an investigator to look into this error. Um, they started telling these employees in mid-January over MLK weekend. Right. Um, but they did that with individualized email. So every employee that was affected was told, you're going, your years of state experience, you're going from X to Y, your pay is going from Y to Z. Uh, they had to prepare all of mm-hmm. that. Um, and also the errors should have started happening in October. They started paying this out in October. They should have seen that they were spending money they didn't have in their budget. So presumably... Someone knew before these employees were told in January. The CFO uh, was put on paid leave. The CFO has since left. Uh, mm-hmm. We have requested an interview with the superintendent, Mubenga. That is an open invitation, so I don't think the superintendent is listening this morning. But if the superintendent is, Do South is a place for you to come in and have a conversation, as we said last week as well. I want to um, play a little bit of tape from those who were involved in the, the sick outs, the walkouts, whatever, however you'd like to uh, kind of classify those. Um, first, want to hear from a special education teacher who I believe you spoke with, and you'll tell us a little bit about this teacher afterward. We are fighting for their sake, for their children to have better qualified and seasoned teachers and staff around who would want to work in an environment where they feel like 10, 15 years of their work service has just been nullified. And if you didn't speak with uh, this special ed teacher, oh, that's I, okay. I did, but, yeah. Okay, go ahead, Liz. Okay, so she's an instructional assistant in okay. a special education classroom. Okay. Um, and she was just saying that she hopes that families understand they're thinking about long-term um, effects here because some of the families and employees I talked to said they're really concerned that some classified staff are already getting ready to leave, that they would resign, that they um, can make more money in neighboring school districts that have paid more. This is actually part of why DPS wanted to pass these raises was to um, put their employees more on par with with Wake County schools, Orange Mm -hmm. County schools. So there's this concern that this is going to have real long-term effects if people leave and leave permanently um, at a time when special education um, employees are like there's already shortages. Yeah. Uh, One of the other um, people that you spoke with as part of your reporting this week uh, was a parent of a special education child. We feel all of the impacts bigger and harder. We feel it first and we feel it most. And I think it impacted more of the people who work with our kids. That's Victoria Facelli. Facelli. Facelli, thank yep. you. Go ahead. The Paisan here can't even pronounce the name right. Um, but you, you, you tell us a little bit about the reporting and the feature uh, that you produced this week. Okay. So Victoria Facelli was one of 
handful of parents of students in special education who spoke at uh, the last school board meeting, it really struck me that most of those, most of the parents who came to talk have kids in special education because they were saying that their kids are more affected by this. Their kids work with many of these staff. Mm -hmm. Um, So her daughter, who is in kindergarten and has cerebral palsy, um, she has a one-to-one instructional assistant who allows her to be in a general education classroom with her non-disabled peers. And this is a right that she has, right, to have the least restrictive environment. So by having that that paraprofessional, she can go to school. She can go to recess. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't have to be in a separate setting room. She can learn um, the same curriculum as, as any other kindergartner. And... Uh, she also sees something like five to ten different classified staff throughout her week. Mm. So there are physical therapists, occupational therapists. And then she was even saying that, you know, like custodians and maintenance staff are even more important um, for kids with disabilities because they are maintaining that school environment to make it safe. And as a parent, you want your, you know, your kid to have the best. And when there's really good staff, whether, you know, that's a teacher, administrator, IA custodian, the cafeteria worker, someone that your kid interacts with that, you know, brings a lot to the school, Mm -hmm. you want to make them happy and you don't want them to leave. Our our email address is dosouthradio at wnc.org. We are working on uh, some additional reporting and coverage of this uh, issue within the Durham Public Schools. If you've got questions, uh, please feel free uh, to send us uh, an email, dosouth at wnc.org. Forget that radio, dosouth at wnc.org. We're all learning here, and by all, I mean me primarily. Uh, North Carolina Friday News and Politics Roundup here uh, on South. Uh, Liz, one more question on uh, DPS, which is we had these walkouts this week. It was, I believe, on Wednesday. What are you anticipating next week? A particular day, more schools, fewer schools? Are we done with this? I don't know whether we're done with it. Um, I think that some of that might depend on the school board meeting this afternoon. So the school board um, called a special meeting for three o'clock today, and they're going to look at two proposals for responding to the pay issue. One would uh, keep their changes to how they honor state experience, um, but it would maintain the raises for the unaffected classified staff who Mm -hmm. didn't have their state experience changed. The other one um, would reduce raises across the board for its 2,200 classified staff, um, but would keep um, or would restore years of experience for the affected staff. Okay. Liz, Don, Colin, and Lucille are here wrapping up the week in news and politics. We're going to jump around a little bit here and try to touch on a few different topics. We'll see uh, what y'all nibble on and what we're just going to move past from. Uh, Colin, a former state Supreme Court justice, filed what appears to me to be a long shot uh, redistricting lawsuit or gerrymandering lawsuit this week. Tell us what Bob Orr is trying to accomplish. So this is an interesting one. Um, You'll remember that we've sort of shifted the redistricting lawsuit uh, venue to the federal courts, in part because Republicans now control the state Supreme Court and have uh, overturned the decision about partisan gerrymandering that was made at that level before. Mm-hmm. Bob Orr is going to try the uh, state courts route again uh, with the argument that the state constitution uh, guarantees a fair election. The, the constitution doesn't actually use the word fair with elections. It says free, but he's making the argument that other provisions of the constitution when taken as a whole should guarantee a fair election and that he argues you can't have a fair election if you have all these districts that are drawn 
to favor a single party, and we already know the outcome going in. So this is one where I feel like it's probably more of a messaging lawsuit. It's unlikely with the composition of the courts at the state level right now that you're going to get the state Supreme Court to particularly buy this argument and go along with this. Uh, But you're certainly making the case um, that something in the Constitution is not being upheld uh, with the way these particular district lines are drawn for this coming election. All right. We'll stick with uh, courts for a moment. Can't find this in my script, so I'm going to do it off the top of my head. We learned this week that Middle District Federal Judge Catherine Eagles is moving to senior status. Uh, She has served over some notable court cases, some um, significant uh, lawsuits pertaining to uh, abortion proceedings. She also presided over the John Edwards case way back when. Um, So there's going to be a vacancy there in the Middle District. And Jim Wynn, who is uh, an appointee, President Obama appointee in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in Richmond, uh, is phasing out and retiring a little bit earlier than people expected. So two federal judgeships coming open here in um, uh, the the, the short term, and the Biden administration will get to uh, nominate someone for those posts. Any names you're hearing, anything you want to throw out there, or shall I just move on on the judgeship front. I'm going to just move on. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, this is, of course, Black History Month uh, and the Greensboro Four, an important part of North Carolina history and uh, civil rights history. Um, This is the first Black History Month since North Carolina's Freedom Park opened in downtown Raleigh. Don, you covered for a long time the development and production and uh, creation of the Freedom Park. What's on tap, if anything, for the Freedom Park um, this Black History Month? I haven't seen anything schedule-wise events, so maybe if you know if you are doing something there and haven't told your local media yet, <laughs> here's your <laughs> here's your chance. I uh, walked through it yesterday. Uh, it's it's right. It's between the legislative building and the executive mansion. So if you've never been there, it's not on the Capitol grounds. I'll get to that in a second. But you it's will. this other separate project that's in the space between. Um, sort of the side of the legislative building and the mansion behind the state archives and next to the Bath building, which is an unused state um, government building that's that's going to be knocked down. But it's a nice play to, uh, place to, to walk through, to contemplate, to certainly people could hold events there. And it's the best route to take if you're, for whatever reason, and I don't know why anyone other than a, a, a Politico would be doing this, but if you're going from the legislature to the executive mansion, it's the best path. Just don't walk up yeah. Street. Yeah. Or, to the, or to the free parking if you're a reporter who <laughs> works at the legislative building. <laughs> if you're, if yeah, what, what free parking? Um, <laughs> if you're at the gates of the front gates of the mansion, yeah. say like you're facing the mansion, you turn around, it's actually a direct view of the legislative yeah. building, which you don't don't always realize until, until you look over there. Um, we mentioned Durham, Freedom Park, the architect of Freedom Park is the late Phil Freelon of, you know, Durham fame mm-hmm. and obviously much more. He's, his architecture firm, Perkins and Will, did the Smithsonian African American History Museum. But um, it's a separate project, but they're mentioned together a, a lot of times. Freedom Park um, got state funding and state funding for the African American monument on the state capitol grounds is stalled. It's been in budgets, out of budgets. It was in the Senate budget this last year. The House didn't do it. All the state needs is a couple million dollars to move forward on this project. They've done committees for years because most the the most frequent visitor to the state capitol grounds are um, school kids on field trips. Mm-hmm. And they go there and they're not seeing the representation that they have of others. Now, there's no monuments to the Confederacy yeah, there down, anymore. But they're just blank spaces where they were, right? So, yeah. Yesterday, uh, my colleague Leonita Inge got due south going with uh, its first offering in our HBCU 101 series. If you missed it, iTunes, Spotify, or 
DoSouthRadio.org. Also going to take a moment to just remind you uh, of some of what we had or just remind you that you can go to DoSouthRadio.org to uh, find previous segments from this week on Do South. One of the uh, highlights uh, of the week for me was a conversation we had with Bobby Kimbrough. This was part of our latest installment of About Dad Time. Kimbrough, if you missed it, Navigated the sudden death of his wife, this was almost 20 years ago, and subsequently raising seven boys afterward, a powerful conversation that indeed generated some tears in our control room. So if you did not uh, hear that conversation uh, from Wednesday, please check it out, DoSouthRadio.org. We've got uh, but one more segment here on our North Carolina News and Politics Roundup here on Do South. Lucille Sherman, Colin Campbell, Don Vaughn. And Liz Schlemmer are here on the other side when we discuss whether or not North Carolina is, in fact, a border state and if our panelists care about that little old basketball game taking place in Chapel Hill tomorrow night. We'll be back in a moment. This is Due South. Welcome back. It's Due South on listener-supported WNC. Another bit of history for you on this Friday. 153 years ago this week, North Carolina Governor William Woods Holden's impeachment trial began. Now, it took Holden a while and several attempts to even reach the governorship, so let's back up briefly. Holden had been the editor of the North Carolina Standard, a Democratic newspaper based in Raleigh, and used the influence of the paper to help Zebulon B. Vance win the gubernatorial race in 1862. Two years later, Holden, a unionist, decided to run against Vance, the man he helped, who was a Confederate, and suffered a humiliating defeat. Then, on May 20, 1865, following the conclusion to the American Civil War, President Andrew Johnson appointed Holden provisional governor of North Carolina. However, Holden went on to lose a subsequent gubernatorial election that fall. In 1868, now running as a Republican, Holden received the vote of the people. He was elected governor and vowed to destroy the Ku Klux Klan, a powerful and driving force behind increased racial violence in our old North state. Holden then hired two dozen detectives to try to clamp down on Klan activities. And Governor Holden's efforts would only escalate as he called in the militia and imposed martial law in Alamance and Caswell counties. That proved to be a significant overstep. A major political backlash followed during the 1870 elections and then impeachment. After the House voted to impeach, the trial of William Woods Holden began this week in 1871. Three months later, Holden became the first governor in American history to be impeached, convicted, and ordered removed from office. That's really interesting. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, That's it really, really paves the way this. for the rest of the whole Jim Crow era where North Carolina's leaders were like, hey, we're not going to mess with the KKK, let them do whatever they want until we get to 1960 and we finally do something about it. And we'll at some point on Due South revisit the, uh, the, the, the dark chapter of the Ku Klux Klan in Greensboro in the mid to late 70s. Um, we're going to attempt to roll that note into uh, a gubernatorial conversation, gubernatorial campaigning here on the Friday News Roundup with Lucille Sherman, Colin Campbell, Don Vaughn, and Liz Schlemmer. Uh, Colin, housing came up uh, this week, and one of the Republican candidates for governor, who we mentioned earlier in the show, Bill Graham, has an idea that, while not novel, hasn't been touted ar- around these parts uh, any time recently. Talk to us about housing and Bill Graham, please. Yeah, so this uh, governor's race really has sort of been devoid of substance for the most part. So when I saw Bill Graham was advertising this idea for a first-time homebuyer's tax credit that you would get basically $5,000 off of your state income taxes if you were a first-time homebuyer buying your first home. Um, I thought that was interesting because housing seems to come up a lot. And, you know, as I travel the state and talk to local leaders, 
towns big and small have housing issues, um, but there's really not a whole lot of policy changes at the right. state level to do something about that. So I thought that was an interesting jumping off point to see him make that proposal. I put out to the other candidates for governor, you know, do they like that idea? Do they have a different idea? And no one else really got on board with that particular idea. We got different competing ideas from different candidates. Dale Falwell, another Republican, wants to expand the uh, amount that you can withhold from your paycheck to pay for child care. That's obviously another big concern of sort of household finance issues. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson uh, sort of has a more broader approach. He thinks we should cut taxes, cut regulations on home builders and developers, and mm-hmm. that would create more supply um, for the housing market. Uh, Josh Stein is looking at uh, ways the state can sort of help fund affordable housing projects through like the Housing Finance Agency and some other state programs. And then the expert I talked to on this issue basically said the governor, as opposed to uh, actually proposing policy, really ought to be trying to work together as sort of the unifying force between the six or seven different state agencies that have housing programs and try to get everybody on the same page working towards a goal and working together. Interesting. Anything to add on this, or shall we move to the governor's executive order? We're sticking with this gubernatorial theme, home, hopefully no impeachment trials um, beginning here on the News Roundup. Uh, Democratic Governor Roy Cooper signed an executive order this week. It's aimed at helping people who have been incarcerated, uh, helping them reenter into society upon their release. Now, as a reminder, 95 percent of state inmates are released. This executive order is also designed to help reduce rates of recidivism. And a reminder here, some 40 percent of individuals who leave prison do return for subsequent crimes or parole violations. Uh, Don, if you were tracking this one, what more can you tell us about this executive order from Cooper this week um, and why uh, why it's coming now and what he's hoping to accomplish? I, didn't, I, didn't, or I was going to say I didn't cover the order, yeah. but reentry is kind of a perennial issue. Um, you know, we're sitting here in Durham and there's it's really hard when people get out. So if there's anything you can do to help usher them along to for them to start fresh, that seems Cooper's motivation here. And it's not anything that people would really be against wanting to help people not go back to jail. Right. And this is a situation kind of the point I mentioned about the governor getting all the state agencies to work together on things like housing. This is kind of like that. He refers to this as a whole of government approach uh, where he's using his executive order authority to sort of force all these state agencies to kind of come together around this issue. Some of the examples were excited what uh, having the Department of Transportation or the DMV go into a prison and help uh, someone who's about to get out after a long prison sentence, get their ID, get their mm-hmm. driver's license, they need it, have health and human services go in them in there, help them sign up for Medicaid or other benefits that would help them once they get on the outside so they're not, you know, immediately broken, unemployed and hungry. Uh, they've got some of the resources they need to get their life started on the outside. I guess for me, like I was ignorant and that I didn't realize that something as simple as helping um people enroll in Medicaid before they leave and before they get out wasn't already happening. Mm. Um, Some of that stuff, when I was reading about it, I was like, oh, it makes sense that this would happen. I can't believe this wasn't already happening. Sure. And some of the, yeah, and there have been changes to some of these protocols and framework and support systems um, over the years um, under Republican rule and Democratic rule. Uh, Let's transition to another topic. Lucille, political pressure and rhetoric seems to be cranking up again or to a new volume as it pertains to the situation at the southern border, the southern U.S. border. Legislative Republicans want the governor to join Greg Abbott, Texas Republican governor, in his efforts uh, along the border with Mexico to alter, reform, do something about uh, the immigration situation. Uh, More substance or theater here as we think about North Carolina Republicans and their jockeying. 
Um, I'll refrain from answering the substance or theater question, but I will say House Speaker Tim Moore, who is running for Congress, which I feel like is a super important point um, when we're talking about this. He seems really interested in this issue all of a sudden. Yeah, suddenly. uh, Can't figure out quite why. He's running for Congress, um, and he said something that I thought was really interesting in the press conference a couple days ago, which was North Carolina is now essentially a border state. His point was to say people are coming from the border um, in Texas to all parts of the country. So he was saying, you know, this is an issue here. Um, He's not exactly alone Mm -hmm. in lawmakers on either side of the aisle making immigration a huge issue. Um, It's been central in Washington. It's been one of the biggest debates happening in Washington right now. And a lot of lawmakers, especially those sort of gunning for congressional offices, are weighing in on this because I think they know they can't avoid avoid it. Democrat Don Davis, uh, who is in Congress and is running again in mm-hmm. a really tough race, mm-hmm. um, he also has been weighing in on the border. So I think it's something that we're not going to be able to avoid in an election year. And I think Republicans here especially definitely want to make this a big it was issue. one of those ones where it's like the, the state government itself, particularly North Carolina, can't do that much. We're not Texas. We're not a real border state. Right. So even in this press conference, they were calling on the governor to essentially change the orders slightly for the National Guard members from North Carolina who were serving at the border. Uh, I think they wanted them to, instead of uh, working with Border Patrol, work with the Texas National Guard, since there's that big power struggle between uh, the governor of Texas and the federal government over who's doing what down there. Um, But really, I mean, there's not that much that really touches on North Carolina, aside from the fact it's a national issue everywhere across the country that is being talked about in this election. Yeah, I mean, it's messaging, right? Speaker Moore is running for Congress. He, You know, him lining up the things he was going to do before he announced his run was he endorsed Trump. He went to the border. And I remember when he mentioned it, you know, I quipped like, what, South Carolina? You're going to, you know. Yeah, go visit south of the border, that weird theme park with the like kind of offensive yeah. um, Mexican imagery. When, well, when in their, in their south, news right? conference, they said that, you know, we're coming with the legislation if you don't do this. And obviously Cooper is not going to say, oh, the Republicans want me to do something. Sure. You know, so it's messaging at this point. Uh, I right think now. there are two other variables that maybe contribute to this being here in the North Carolina news ecosystem this week. One is the fact that Congress has failed on the issue of immigration going back 40 years. I believe the last significant piece of policy from a federal standpoint pertaining to immigration was passed during the Reagan administration mm-hmm. when perhaps some of our panelists weren't even born. Uh, there's a, it also, I think, kind of bespeaks just this nationalization of politics, right? Like we see campaign ads where legislative candidates are getting tied to, uh, you know, Jim Jordan or Nancy Pelosi. And it's like these, these people have nothing to do with Nancy Pelosi or, or Jim Jordan. But these national issues have kind of infiltrated down and, and made North Carolina a border state. Yeah, real or perceived. that's exactly what I was about to say, Jeff. This speaks to the nationalization of politics, which is honestly a big bummer because right. what lawmakers closer to the people <laughs> can do um, actually impacts our lives more. <laughs> yeah, like housing, for example, um, affects our lives more. And yet we're talking a lot about an issue that's very far away from yeah. North Carolina. So I'll answer my own question. Weigh in if you want more substance or theater. It is more theater than substance at this point from my perspective. But would you push back on that? Well, I think there's one exception to that. There's a really, I think, powerful ad that came out this week, maybe didn't get a lot of attention in a congressional race in the triad. Uh, Lobbyist turned congressional candidate Addison McDowell, Mm -hmm. who's running in the Republican primary, had a very personal ad uh, about his brother dying of a fentanyl overdose, which he blamed for drugs that came over through the Mexican border. I don't know the full backstory on Mm -hmm. that, um, but certainly, at least for one person, this is a very personal issue. Uh, For everybody else, perhaps it's more messaging and trying to sort of 
catch the wave of this national political issue that everyone's talking about. It's a political line, too. It's, it is. It does matter to people. It's not. I mean, obviously, the economy is always number one. And, you know, how are you doing personally in your life? But um, immigration is something that's been an issue, you know, for what decades. Yep. And people want answers and they're not getting the solutions that they want. So they're going to keep talking about it. And right. plus, it, it is falling along like some some party lines, Congress could actually do something to solve the problem. We'll find out if they actually, if it if it happens. But this is a Republican issue right now, so Republicans are talking about it. There was an interesting uh, episode of The Daily from The New York Times this week talking about how uh, the Senate had a bipartisan agreement on some immigration reform, uh, but it now, uh, well, it, it potentially just might break down on the House side. So lots of political factions uh, and, and challenges to getting anything done on immigration, as we have seen going back again to uh, the Reagan administration. Uh, North Carolina Friday News Roundup rolling along here on Due South. A few more minutes here with Lish Lemmer, Colin Campbell, Don Vaughn, and Lucille Sherman in our Durham studios. I want to prompt you, of course, um, interested in what jumped out to you this week. What jumps out to you uh, regularly if you're baffled by the news, if you've just uh, got something that we have not weighed in on and would like us to, uh, please don't hesitate to send us an email, south at wnc.org, south at wnc.org. All right, sports time. Tomorrow in Chapel Hill, it's Carolina versus Duke. Tip-off in the Smith Center a little, a little, a little hello, after 6.30. Tar Heels are ranked third in the country, set atop the ACC. The Blue Devils are number seven in this week's poll and sit second in the conference. Where will you watch? Who's going to win? Or are you just irritated that I'm even <laughs> posing this to you, a Hokie graduate? Uh, okay. Don't a Duke fan, though. I am a Duke <laughs> fan, and I had to pick my local allegiance, um, okay. NCCU, and also Duke. It took me a long time to finally become a Duke fan. It was working in Durham for, for you know, a decade, but um, go Duke. I'm excited. I hope they beat UNC. I say this all the time. Hubert Davis went to my high school in Northern Virginia, so I appreciate the UNC basketball program, but I am a Duke fan. You have the fiery hatred an actual Duke grad no, would have. No, it's all fun. It's as though you're going to go to lunch and order a, a split plate with Eastern and Western barbecue. You can't do that, Vaughn. You <laughs> yeah, have sure to... I can, yeah. I mean, I'm an ACC fan, too, as long as they're still ACC. We'll see. Any thoughts on the game tomorrow? Colin, a UNC yeah. grad. Yeah, I'm a UNC grad. I'm not a, a huge sports guy, so I won't make any huge predictions. Okay. But uh, one thing I will note is the most fun part of the Duke-UNC rivalry is the ceremonial rushing of Franklin Street. When I was a mm-hmm. student, I did my share of yeah. uh, jumping small bonfires, not big ones. I noticed that the town of Chapel Hill has already put out regulations. Do not bring furniture to Franklin Street uh, this weekend uh, because obviously the concern was if you bring in furniture, someone will light it on fire, and that so, could be a problem. So Duke would make oh, it burns. super boring. Like they would – like. I I remember like, I don't know, 15 years ago, like covering Durham where they would be like, here are the permits and there's going to be the bonfire. And this is the exact bench we're oh, doing. Please. And I'm like, you're taking the fun away. Yeah, so stuff yeah. on burn fire. Center, yeah. though, like they have serious burns like every other year. You know, someone gets uh, pulled in with like. I have a story I like to tell from when I lived in Carborough and I so I I have a degree from Carolina. Uh, my partner has a degree from Duke. We do not care about college basketball. But to underscore but, you under undergrad, you went elsewhere. You have yeah, undergrad. Yeah, exactly. That's important. Um, but when I lived in Carborough, there was one night I didn't realize it was a Duke Carolina game. But I was sitting at home and all of a sudden I just heard someone screaming in the street. And I lived not close to Franklin, not super, super close to Franklin. I heard someone screaming. I thought, um, uh, am I going to have to call 911? Is this like a domestic violence situation? And then 
few seconds later, I heard the dull roar. And I went, oh, <laughs> oh there, was game a, night. there was a Duke oh. Carolina game tonight. That's Road what now. it was. <laughs> what say you, Boomer Sooner? Um, yeah, so I'm not from anywhere near North Carolina. I'm from the grand state of Oklahoma. And I have gone the opposite direction of Dawn. And um, I've tied my, I've hitched my wagon to UNC. Mm-hmm. I'm not like a huge sports person. Um, but it feels safer to me in this state to be safer. a UNC fan. Uh, just a bigger critical mass, uh, particularly in the journalism world. There's a lot of UNC fans. And also in politics, in a space. Oh, definitely in politics, yeah. Yeah, in a space where I'm trying to make friends and get people to share their secrets with me, I find that uh, being a UNC fan uh, sometimes helps. Uh, so that's where I'm at. All right. Sounds I like good. your Carolina blue glasses. Tip. <laughs> exactly. Leaning in. Giving a little illustrative uh, touch here on the radio. Um, I'll just say that I'm taking my five and a half year old uh, to the game uh, tomorrow. And he <gasps> is. <gasps> he has been. We took him when he was 11 months old. And there's a picture. Uh, but he is a, a hoops nut. Now, I wouldn't normally take a five year old to uh, this game. But he is a hoops nut. He is very excited. Uh, for the game tomorrow night. So uh, hopefully it is a good and entertaining one. We've got just 90 seconds or so remaining, so we're going to pinwheel this really quickly in a sentence or three, something you're following, something you're tracking next week or thinking about in the news, political, North Carolina ecosystem. I'm going to pick on Colin first. Uh, still looking through all these campaign finance reports. I'm uh, The congressional one should be in soon if they're not already, uh, and we'll get a sense for in some of these races where there's like, 13 Republicans running for the same thing. Who actually has the mojo to actually win? Don? Uh, it's candidate questionnaire season, so mm-hmm. that's going to be my life for the next few weeks. If you haven't turned them in, lawmakers, turn them in now. Liz, briefly. I'm still wondering whether there are going to be more sick outs in Durham public schools. <laughs> uh, syphilis cases are on the rise in North Carolina. Use protection, please. <gasps> yeah. Please. Hey, it's Groundhog Day, by the way. Punxsutawney Phil says it's an early spring. He did not see his shadow today. Do yourself a favor and uh, find Groundhog Day with Bill Murray uh, if you need some laughs this weekend. Catch some college basketball and please join us again on Monday at 10 o'clock. That's when Due South uh, will give you uh, a little bit more news, information, politics, race, and Southern culture from across the grand American South. That will do it for this Friday. A big thanks to everybody who helps bring Due South to your ears. For executive producer Aaron Kiever, producers Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy, as well as technical director Denarius Thomas and my esteemed co-host Leonita Inge, my name is Jeff Tabiri. Have a great weekend.